hauling Just look at the load I'm hauling Hard work, I hit it harder Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer Sun up to sundown Backing up traffic all the way to town Camo hat and a farmer's tan Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. We're awful glad you joined us. On this episode, the USDA came out this week with its August crop production reports, and we'll hear a summary of those. We'll also talk with the National FFA Organization's Christy Meyer about how the organization will help chapters maneuver through an unusual school year and what a virtual national convention might look like. We'll introduce a new series from the Hot Rod Farmer, Ray Bohax, and we'll profile Corn Warrior Season 4 competitor, Eric Reed. We'll also talk with country music legend, Jeannie Seeley, who has a new album out this week. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go. Well, first up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, the USDA on Wednesday came out with its August crop production reports. We wanted to share that summary with you as we draw near to harvest in many parts of the country. Corn and soybean production estimates significantly up, cotton and winter wheat production estimates down. The summary of USDA's August crop production reports based on conditions as of August 1st. The year-over-year forecast for corn indicate a record 15.3 billion bushels for this year's crop up 12% from 2019. Likewise, soybean production from the previous year is forecasted to rise 25%. And while not a record production number at over 4.4 billion bushels, the 2020 crop is expected to have record yield, right now forecasted at 53.3 bushels per acre. This year's all-cotton crop production estimates were lowered 9% from 2019, despite a record yield of 938 pounds estimated for this year's crop. Winter wheat production estimates were lowered 2% from the previous month, forecasted now at 1.2 billion bushels. That was Rod Bain with USDA Radio reporting. We'll keep an eye on those production totals and bring them to you as they're released. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, a new school year is here, and we're excited to welcome into the show Christy Meyer, the communications manager for the National FFA organization, to discuss how they plan to support chapters across the country as they head back to school in some unusual and un certain times. We'll also discuss what a virtual national convention and expo might look like this October. Christy, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Thanks, Brent. Thanks for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Well, the National FFA organization has more than 700,000 student members who belong to one of more than 8,600 local chapters in the United States, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And for those members, the second half of the 2019-2020 school year was unlike anything we've seen before. And in many areas of the country, the new school year is picking up right where that one left off. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that we were kind of hand in hand with those schools at the end of the school year. I think a lot of us in the industry also ended up working remotely. So it was definitely a new normal for all of us and kind of finding our way. Now, I know that things might look vastly different in one state than another, but in general, what was learned during the last school year that the FFA and its chapters are applying to this new school year? You know, the one thing that I really learned are that FFA members are resilient and they definitely find a way to give back to their community no matter what they're going through. What we found is when people were being um, 
learning remotely and back from home and not being able to be with others, they still found a way to engage in their community and help their local community. So I just found that spirit of service is just alive and well with our members. What are some of the creative ways you've seen FFA chapters connect with members when they haven't been able to meet in person? Yeah, so there were a lot of creativity. Um, We had a lot of online events, online conventions. We had some students who knew that their local farmers were hurting. So they worked together to collect money from their community and then buy product from their farmers and then donate it to local food banks. So it was definitely a circular event of how they were helping their community. We had others who might not have been able to do their plant sales. So they found a way to either donate those plants or to do drive through plant sales. So we really found that our members and their advisors started getting really creative of how they could still continue what they would normally do throughout the end of the year. Do you have a sense for the types of questions the chapters are bringing back to the national FFA in regards to conducting business virtually or responsibly if it's being done in person? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that the organization started at the end of the year is a newsletter called Owls Chat. And so it reached out to our advisors and really just talked to them about what was going on, kind of a weekly touch base, giving them practice and tips. And then as we continue on into the school year this year, we're continuing those online resources. So resources for for teachers, if they're going to be teaching remotely, kind of help them and guide them. And then in September, we're doing monthly Owl Chats where advisors can log in and get tips from people in the industry. So I understand many of the chapters also have been actively involved in distributing fresh food to people in need throughout their communities. Yeah, so really what we've seen is them working with their local schools, especially if there was food that would not be served, working with them and then figuring out a way to give it back to the community, whether it's food banks or through um, community centers to give to people. The other way, as I mentioned earlier, is working with local farmers, purchasing meat or purchasing dairy, and then giving it to the food bank so then they have proteins to give to the community. So we're really seeing a lot of creativity. Um, Another example we had was, I believe it was in Iowa, they started a community garden. So they took the seeds that they would have used planted a garden. And then as the summers progress, they're going to start teaching the community how to harvest and then how to store that food too. So really trying to teach what they're learning in school to their community and making it just a a big chain. So it's wonderful to see the value chain at work. How does FFA keep the lines of communication open and keep everyone in the know when you've got so many different situations with some kids learning at home and others learning in the classroom? You know, one thing that we really saw this year was our national officers usually travel and do chapter visits or visit state conventions. Obviously, that in-person visit changed. And so what we saw was our national officers being a little more creative, reaching out on Facebook and social media, um, having a set time once a week to really connect with our members And as a result, what we found out is they were connecting with more members that way and really developing even more relationships than they would if they were in person. So a big announcement the organization made in late June was that this year's National FFA Convention and Expo to be held in October will be going virtual the week of October 28th. What went into making that decision and what did you learn from some of the virtual state conventions that will be helpful in executing this year's national convention? Yeah, absolutely. So... This spring, we really weren't sure what convention was going to look like. We were planning for an in-person event, but then as the pandemic continued and we saw different pieces, we really reached out to our advisors and to the school districts to see what they were thinking for when school would restart. And many of them said that they just weren't going to be able to travel. They weren't going to be allowed to leave the state. They weren't going to be able to do field trips. So 
What we came to the realization is with this in mind, it was going to be harder for them to travel to Indianapolis, which hosts the convention. So it made more sense to do a virtual event. So we announced end of June that convention will be virtual. Um, the wonderful thing about it, though, and what we learned from those virtual state conventions is it's an opportunity to really touch more people. So we usually average 69 to 70,000 attending national convention, but through the virtual option, we'll be able to reach a lot more of our members. So that's really exciting that so many more will get to experience what is normally experienced in person. So what might look somewhat similar to what folks have seen in the past at the convention and what might look different? Yeah, so we timed this perfect, Brent, because we actually are putting our convention website live August 12th. So you'll be able to log on to convention.ffa.org and find out more information of what that's going to look like and figure out what those times are going to be. So you're hoping to be live again in Indianapolis in 2021. And you also announced in June that you'll be heading back to Indianapolis through 2033. Yes. So we extended our stay in Indianapolis till 2033, and we're pretty excited about that. And hopefully if all goes well, we'll see everybody in person next year. So I understand that even though you're going virtual this year, you wanted to keep up the tradition of public service, giving back to Indianapolis, something you guys have done ever since you've had the convention there. What might that look like this year? Yeah, absolutely. The city has been so wonderful to us in the past. And even this year as we're making the decision, they supported us all along the way. And it's really imperative that we give back and let them know how much our members appreciate not just them as the community, but as communities overall. So we're excited to be able to give back. We're not sure exactly what that's going to look like this year, but we're definitely going to give back to the city. I will also tell you another tease for when you get onto the website. You're definitely going to encourage um, days of service throughout convention, but this time it won't just focus on one location. It'll be able to focus throughout the country. So another big recent announcement this week, you announced the award finalists for this year's national awards. Yeah, so our star finalists were announced on Monday. So we're pretty excited about that. We're still following a lot of things that happen at convention, which means we have our finalists for our star awards. We'll have our proficiency finalists. We'll have our national chapter finalists. And all of those winners will still be announced the week of convention. So we're really excited about that. Those students will still be able to be recognized along with all of our American degree recipients. So as we enter a new school year, what else is on the horizon for FFA? Yeah, so as we enter this new school year, of course, it's kind of a new reality for all of us. We're going to continue some of those things we did at the end of the year in terms of the OWL chats, offering resources for those who are doing remote learning, continuing really pushing our service and the importance of service. Um, we also um, are doing chapter grants for um, those chapters who have different service projects that they're doing. So we're encouraging that. We also announced our scholarships not too long ago. And so a reminder to everybody that scholarship applications for next year will go live in November. So we've got a lot going on. And then at the end of the week, we will announce our new membership numbers. So that will come out on Friday. So we're pretty excited yeah. about that. So if listeners out there want to keep tabs on the latest in FFA news, where can they go? Yeah, so follow National FFA on Twitter and go to FFA.org on our website and follow National FFA on Facebook, and we'll keep you guys posted on everything that's happening. Well, Christy, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Fastline Fast Track, and I want to wish all the FFA members out there the best of luck in the new school year. Keep making your families, your communities, and all of agriculture proud. Thank you, Brent. And we've been chatting with Christy Meyer, the communications manager for the National FFA organization. 
Well, next up on Fast Sign Fast Track is a new regular segment called Bushels and Scents from New Jersey farmer and automotive engineering expert Ray Bohax, who's also a successful podcaster and contributor to many publications, including Successful Farming and Farm Machinery Digest. Welcome to Bushels and Scents, a weekly podcast from the Farm Machinery Digest. I am your host, Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer. And never forget, it is not what you make, but what you keep that counts. You do not believe that it is necessary to use a lubricity additive with ultra-low sulfur diesel fuel. At around 120,000 miles, your pickup bucks once and suffers a loss of power. The service engine soon light comes on. The truck will now not go above 20 miles per hour. You get it towed to the dealership and they tell you the common rail pump has shredded internally and put metal in all the fuel injectors from a lack of lubricity. The repair bill is $8,000 or the equivalent of 2,856 bushels of $3.50 corn, all because you did not want to spend five cents per gallon to treat the fuel. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Visit FarmMachineryDigest.com where steel and soil meet. And again, you can find out more about Ray, his podcasts, and all his great print content on his website, FarmMachineryDigest.com. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, we continue our series of profiles on Corn Warriors, Season 4 competitors. Up next is Eric Reed from Elora, Tennessee. In addition to corn, he also farms cotton and soybeans. And like Jake Droz, Eric is one of the new guys on the block, and I know everyone will be interested to see how he does. Eric, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. Appreciate the invite. Now, I had a chance to watch your contestant application video, and you called yourself a super fan of the show and said that you were able to take some of that technique that you learned and uh, apply it to your farm and actually saw some yield gains from it. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, it, it intrigued me. You know, I saw these people making five and 600 bushels, and, and I thought, you know, if these guys can make five and 600 bushels, then why can't I make 300? 350 i mean it it kind of it kind of opened my eyes a lot to you know hey you know i can do this so i just sat down with with the attitude that hey i'm going to try i'm going to try my best to do this and uh I, I just you know tightened up the ship so to speak and just made sure that i checked all the boxes so to speak you know i i, I got the right hybrid for for my area you know, I, I dialed the planter in. I slowed the planter down. I just make sure, made sure that I wasn't making any foolish mistakes. And I took a lot of what I learned from the show and applied it to my farm. I, I was like a little school kid with a pen and paper, and I, I would record the episodes and play them back over and over and over. Now then, I understood that they wasn't giving up all the secrets. I knew that. But there were small glitches in what they were doing that I was keen enough to pay attention to that I understood why they were doing that. So, you know, that's the stuff that I took and used. And, you know, along with some other help, so to speak, I had a good agronomist that got involved. And you're only as good as the people that surround you. I mean... You had to have good people on you, and good good things happen. But you know, we ended up. I was making 185, 190 
bushel corn. I was hung right there. I couldn't, I couldn't ever break that hunk. And we took that process and applied it and brought my whole farm average up to 255. Wow. Yeah, and this is all dry land, no irrigation whatsoever, all dry land. And, you know, that right there was proof in the pudding that you can do this. Now then, we've ramped it up even more, so to speak. You know, we've, we've just made more adjustments. Uh, we've done our own farm testing. You need to do your own testing because you know your ground. Uh, you know what hybrid needs to be on what dirt. You you just there's nobody that can tell you no more than what you know yourself, so to speak. If you, if you understand what I'm trying to say, you, we test and test and test and test. I mean, we test populations, we test hybrids, we test you know you name it chemicals application times we test it all we data log it and uh, last year on our farm last year mother nature did not trump i mean she played ball all the way from start to finish so there i told i told seth and some of the other guys i said you know what if there was ever a year that you could take your data and lock it up in a vault, it was last year. Hmm. Because all that data was valid. Because Mother Nature didn't trump you. She didn't, she didn't, she didn't not give you the rainfall. She didn't not give you the, you know, temperatures. It was all perfect. So we took our data and we locked it up in a vault, you know, and, that gives us a good, uh, I guess what you call reboot system. I mean, uh, default system. You can go back to that data and get back to home base. Because I promise you, you can get so far out in the left field that you don't know how to get back to where you started from. You don't need to try a lot of crazy things. Stick with three or four things. Try them. Don't give up on them in one year. Something might not have been just exactly right. Try it again. You know, it may hit the next time. If it don't hit, try them three times at least. If it doesn't work out out of three times, you know, two out of three times, get rid of it. It's going to bog you down. It's going to bog your thinking there. So you talk about uh, uh, what growing season looks like on your farm. And one of the things that you mentioned in your uh, uh, video that, that's important to you, and you, you just referenced it there a little bit, is the importance of tissue sampling. Yes, yes, it's very, very important. And, and you'd be amazed at the farmers that don't do that. You know, I have guys call me up all the time, hey, Eric, you know, I, I've got something going on with my corn. Can you come look at it? And I say, yeah, I'll be happy to if you put any tissue samples. And you get the deer in the headlight look when you say that. And they go, what's that? And you just be amazed the farmers that don't know what tissue sampling is. You know, tissue sampling, we do it every Monday morning regardless. I don't care what's going on. I don't care if we got a doctor's appointment. I don't care if it's raining, snowing, sleeting, hailing. I don't care. I don't want to hear the excuse. Get in the truck. We're going. And we go tissue sample. 
we come, we pull our, let's say we, let me back up. I, <laughs> I pull my own tissue sample. You don't pay somebody $8 an hour to go tissue sample for you. Do it yourself. You know where you need to go pull that tissue sample at. Don't run out there and pull it in the best spot. I like to go out there and pull it what I call blind eyes. I go out there and I just walk out in it, and I kind of know the spot in the field that's going to give me a good average. And I pull it myself. I label it. Bring it back here. Then I process them all here. I put them in the bags. I label them, and FedEx gets them and takes them off. Now, you know, when you get that sample back, that's your roadmap. That's the only way you know what's in the plant. And back to the people that call me all the time asking me for help, you know. And then the first feel they're going to give me is, hey, I've got X amount of fertilizer under it, da 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 And I'm like, that's fine. What do you have in the plant? Well, I don't know. How do you tell that? Well, through the tissue samples. That's how you tell it. And that's that's how you know what your plant is uptaking. You can have all the fertilizer under you know underneath it in the world, but if it's not uptaking it, it's worthless. Worthless. And you can you can bind up a lot of metals real easy, like your copper, your zinc, your boron, your manganese. A lot of that will bind up real easily. Uh, you've got to have that science portion there just right for everything to free flow like it's supposed to. And we want all them levels to be, you know, right. We want them to be as near perfect as they can be. And when we get our tissue samples back, we, like I said, we, we sample on Monday. I get an email Wednesday. Thursday, we've got a game plan up of what we need to do to correct it. Friday, we go out and we apply whatever recipe we think will you know, help or try to correct. And then Monday, we start the process all over again. And it's all about building that database. You know, keep a log, keep a journal of all this information. You know, I keep a journal of what I do every single week. That way I can back it up at the end of the year and look where I made the mistake and take note of that because I don't want to make that mistake again. And I promise you, <laughs> good mistakes are expensive. I mean, we don't make five and six and $10,000 mistakes. We make 50 and $60,000 mistakes. And the reason I say that is when you, when you're, you know, when you're trying to get 350, 400 bushel corn, when you go to run the math back on it, it's expensive. You don't want to, you don't want to make those mistakes, and you just try to stay away from that. So, the use of Y drops we talked about last week with Jake Jarose, who's seen some success with it. And I understand uh, you've had quite a bit of success with it as well. Yes, yes. Y dropping is another big uh, contributing factor. Uh, last year I, was the first year I Y dropped, and you know, I've always been a coulter kind of guy. We've always knifed ours in with a coulter. And uh, when I saw them wide drops, 
for the first time, I thought, you know, it only makes good sense. Uh, I've never thought that that nitrogen could get to that plant putting it in through that culture. Uh, nitrogen does not move left or right. It only moves up and down. Now then, it'll move left or right about six inches either way, just bleeding out, so to speak. But when it moves through the soil, it only moves downward. So when any time that you can put that nitrogen right by that root ball, you're money ahead. So the first dew that happens after you apply it, that corn plant has actually already began to uptake that nitrogen. And, you know, we all know how much nitrogen it takes to grow a bushel of corn. We know that. Don't go out here and try to apply a bunch of nitrogen to try to make a big yield because it's not going to work. I, mean, I can tell you, it will not work. Now then, you know, it it's kind of like us when we sit down at the dinner table. When we start to eat, our bodies know when we're full. And what happens when we get full? We get up from the dinner table. That corn is the same way. When it gets its belly full of that nitrogen, it gets up from the dinner table. It's not going to uptake any more of it. So you're just wasting money over applying. Uh, but yes, the wide dropping, it allows us, we try to split our contest stuff. We'll, we'll double apply it with a wide drop rig. We'll split it. We'll split the rate running about i don't know we try right v8 right in there and then we'll come back running about v10 v11 right in there trying to get the rest of it on simply because i got it on a toolbar i don't have mine on the high cycle so i've got to get it on pretty quick or i'll start breaking the corn over but also it allows you to put a lot of micronutrients on later in the year and that that's that's a big key player too. So how do you see things playing out on the show this year? I I, I look at myself as kind of like the under, underdog. You know, I I know I can't compete with with Kevin and Brooks and you know Dan. I know I can't. Okay, uh, but everything that I've done, I've done on my own because I'm a first generation farmer. I've been growing corn four years. That's it. And for somebody to put a 328 bushel yield up out of a man that's been growing corn four years, that's pretty stout and be dry land. You know, and then we come along with 316 in Alabama. And we also won the soybean contest for Tennessee, too. We put 90 bushels on the board dry land soybean. And that was the three... That was the three goals that I had last year, those three goals. And I, I, I achieved all three goals. Tell us about the land and the terrain where you are in south-central Tennessee. Uh, you know, you mentioned Tennessee and Alabama. You're just a few miles north of the Alabama border but have holdings in both states. Yes, yes. I, I actually live about two miles from the state line. Uh, I, I'm 30 miles north of Huntsville, Alabama. And I'm 90 miles south of Nashville, Tennessee. And if you draw a straight line from Huntsville to Nashville, 
and look dead in the center on the state line. That's where I'm at. But um, I, I, I'm right in between a river system called the Elk River. The Elk River is on the north side of me, and on the south side of me is the Cumberland Mountains. And the Cumberland Mountains, they go all the way to the smoke. But, um, you know, all of our terrain is rolling, uh, fairly red. Uh, it's got some rocks in it, of course, you know, living around these mountains. But uh, it's all red and rolling. And we have to terrace a lot of it to keep it from uh, from washing or eroding. And we sow cover crops and whatnot. But um, where the guys up north are, you know, have unlimited amount of topsoil, we have about seven inches of topsoil. So, you know, we don't have a lot of microbial stuff. We don't have a lot of organic matter, and, and it's we have to build it. We have to build our land up through chicken litter and cover cropping, and, you know, it makes it tough when you don't have a lot of topsoil. Um, it's, it's hard to hold nutrients. It's hard to hold water, but the good Lord give it to me and I'm going to make it work. So. Well, you talk about, uh, something special that has come from those yield gains and making the most of the, the land that you have there. And, and you've done that. You, you won the national corn growers association, top honors for Alabama while your daughter won the top honors for Tennessee. Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, she's, she's highly involved in, in, in the, agriculture here uh she t- she actually takes more interest in it than my, than my son and, and that's great because uh we need more women in agriculture what's her name uh madison madison reed excellent we've got a madison too so shout out to madison and what, what school is she at uh, she's at lincoln county high school excellent shout out to lincoln county and also to the ffa program there it's uh, that's great to hear so as we head down the stretch here in your first year of corn warriors, we get ready for harvest season. What's the crop looking like there at Reed Farms? We've had a turn of events here on my farm this year. We we had a really, really good crop going uh, up until about three weeks ago. We, we had one, I thought, you know, there was a possibility that we might get there. Uh, we had everything right. Pollination was absolutely perfect. I mean, we had 68 degrees at night during pollination uh, and, and consecutive i mean just back to back to back and i thought man this is going to be great and it did it pollinated great best pollination i've ever had but then here come mother nature and she laid the trunk card and uh we haven't had any rain we're starting the fourth week right now of no water whatsoever uh, and we've had high, high temperatures, uh, 96, 98 degrees. And, and then the feel like it's 110, 108. I mean, this has been extremely hot. And uh, my Alabama stuff right now, I could probably go ahead and start shelling down there. The corn is really, really dry down. It's really, really burned up. Uh, you know, and it's it's sickening. It's I'd rather lose it on the front than lose it right there on the tail end. You know, when you go down there and you look, and you you got the amount of kernels around that you was trying to trying to get. You know, we wanted 18, 20 around, and we we got it. But then you go looking at the length, and they look like, I guess, uh, Coca-Cola cans. What I'm trying to say, 
they're about six, seven inches long, and you got all that tip back, and you know what happens. You know, you just run out of water. But that's that's the nature of the game. You're not going to win them all, and uh, we understand that. But, you know, overall, it looks pretty good. The, the soybeans look real good. Uh, all of our contest stuff looks pretty decent. We, we, of course, well, I've got probably five or six NCGA entries uh, scattered about in both states. And then we've got a soybean entry in Tennessee, too. That look real good. We're plugging away, trying to get combines ready and cotton pickers ready. And, and uh, my wife, she actually owns a cotton gin too. So, uh, you know, they're, they're working on the cotton gin too. So, well, I can tell you what, if you guys uh, listening to this here uh, don't uh, understand how much of a student of the game this guy is. Tune in to Season 4 of Corn Warriors on RFD TV, also Carbon TV, Amazon Prime, and you can become a Yellow Gold member on the website, cornwarriorstv.com, and I guarantee you're going to get quite an education from Eric Reed. And Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today on Fast Line Fast Track. Yes, yes. I, 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 will, I want to try to invite everybody just, just to kind of pay close attention to me because I'm trying to relate it down to layman's terms so to speak i want all the young farmers to to, to don't get your don't get your hopes down keep your head up you can do this i mean four years look what i've done in four years uh you know the sky's the limit don't 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 get down just because you hadn't hadn't you know hit your goal set your goal within reach too don't set it up there so high that you can't get it because it's going to deter you I can't wait to check it out. And again, we've been speaking with Eric Reed, competitor for season four of Corn Warriors. And make sure you come back again next week as Eric shares more of his insights on the future of agriculture. Well, next up on the show, we have a real treat in store for you. You might even call her an American classic. Grand Ole Opry legend, singer, songwriter, radio show host, and the pride of Titusville, Pennsylvania, Miss Country Soul, Jeannie Seeley. Jeannie, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Hey, this is exciting. I'm, it's a whole new world for me working from my living room, but we're having fun. Well, I tell you what, as an added bonus, we also welcome in our great friend Tim Atwood, 34 years, a piano player for the Grand Ole Opry. He struck out on his own solo career, which is doing quite nicely. We had him back on episode nine of the Fast Line Fast Track podcast, and we're thrilled to have him back. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on here, and it's also a pleasure to work with Jeannie, always. Oh, Tim's got some... something, Brent. <laughs> Tim's got some new music here that's coming up, and uh, we're going to talk about that in a bit. But Jeannie, you celebrated birthday number 80 a couple weeks ago, and even though you've been on quarantine here the past few months, you've not let the grass grow under your feet here. No. Uh, you know, actually, in one way, it's given us more time to work on what we're doing with you, you know. If we were mm -hmm. on the road, we might have had a little bit harder time doing this. But it's a whole new world for me. But like I said, I'm I'm having a great time. And you know what's so funny is it seems like everybody understands we're all working from home. So they give us a little leeway, if you will. If we make a mistake, they're not quite as critical maybe. We don't have to be quite as professional. So I'm just here to hang out with you, Brent. 
Well, thank God for all that grace, because I need it too, probably more than anybody. <laughs> We're trying to trying to get through these things. I know I was flipping around Circle TV the other day and saw you on Circle Sessions, uh, the home edition there, showing off a bit about what you're doing. What are some of the other things you've been doing through all this to stay busy? Well, we've done a lot of promos and things that will run later on. You know, we're just kind of trying to get ahead of the game while we have the time to do it and setting up our own things from the living rooms. Well, I know one of the toughest parts of all this is not getting to be on that legendary Opry stage. You've been a member for almost 53 years, now 53 years next month. And we're the first female to be uh, host regularly on those segments. That institution was keeping you quite busy uh, up until recently. I know that's, uh, uh, that's got to be tough not to, uh, to be able to do those regularly. I'm really homesick. You know, the Grand Ole Opry's been like a second home to me. It's been a part of my life since my early childhood, as far back as I can remember. So, yeah, I'm pretty homesick. Well, you talk about being a, a, such a part of your life at an early age. Uh, I remember seeing in, in one of your bios that uh, that really began around age four uh, when you were able to uh, reach the dial of the console radio and, and be able to turn on WSM. And it hasn't stopped since then. No. My mom said that I, well, she stopped short of saying I threw a tantrum, but she was kind <laughs> of alluding to that, that I thought every time I turned that up, that's not that I should be able to the Grand Ole Opry or at least country music. And I never grew out of that. I still feel like we should be able to hear the Grand Ole Opry and country music just any time we want to. And fortunately, with today's technology, we pretty much can. So from some of those earliest shows uh, up through your childhood, who were some of the stars of the, the day that really stood out to you? Well, one of my favorites going back way back to my childhood was little Jimmy Dickens. And it was so funny to me because I remember way back when I saw him, he was small and he sang all these songs about sleeping at the foot of the bed and taking an old cold tater to wait. And I remember I wasn't sure whether he was an adult or a kid. It seemed like he could go places without parents, but so he didn't, but he didn't seem like an adult to me. Dickens always used to laugh about that when I told him that. And of course, Ernest Tubb was so big, grew up during World War II, and Ernest Tubb was a major force on the radio and records back then. And of course, when I got to Nashville and had a hit record, one of the big thrills was being able to uh, be on Ernest's television show and the Midnight Jamboree and travel with him some. I love it. How, how many times have you done the Midnight Jamboree? Oh, my goodness. I have no idea. I remember one night at the Opry backstage, we were laughing. Some One of the young artists was saying it was their 50th time to work the Opry or something like that. And they turned to me and said, how many times have you been on the Opry? And so Amy Graham was standing there and she went to the computer and she brought about on how many thousand times I'd been on the Opry. And we were all laughing and she said, but you were a member here 20 years before we had computers. So <laughs> who knows? <laughs> so you came to Nashville in 65 at the urging of Dottie West and uh, a year later took the Hank Cochran classic, Don't Touch Me to the Top of the Charts. And then another year after that, you're, you're a member of the Grand Ole Opry. What was that ride like? 
You know, when you first catch that brass ring, which, you know, only a few of us are fortunate enough to, to catch that, there's so much wonderful talent in Nashville and actually all around the country. So it is, you know, it is truly a blessing when you get that opportunity to get that big record. Almost overnight, nobody knew who you were. Nobody cared if they saw you or heard you. And the next thing you know, everybody wants to see you. Everybody wants to hear you. And it's just a whirlwind. And, you know, if you stop and think about it, I had only been in Nashville a few months when, because I moved in October of 65. And that record was released in March and went to number one in June. So I didn't even know my way around the city, let alone have anything together. So it was totally a whirlwind for me. A lot of people don't realize I never was attended the Opry. I listened to it my whole life, but I never got to attend the Grand Ole Opry until I was on it. Oh, wow. Do you still remember stepping into that circle for the first time? Well, of course, the circle was the entire Ryman stage mm -hmm. at that time mm -hmm. because I, my first appearance was at the Ryman. And also, I'm so glad that I was able to become a member of the Grand Old Opry at the Ryman. So both places are very special to me. The Opry House is, is special, and it's more like home to me because by the time my career reached a set leveling out place to where I could be home and work the Opry more, we were at the Grand Ole Opry house now. So I've been there longer. So that's more like home, but I still have such reverence for the Ryman and, and so glad I was able to join there. You remember anything about that first night? Yeah, you know, the emotions or anything that, that, were, that were going through you that night? Oh, oh yeah. There was excitement and sheer terror. <laughs> you know, what if I forget the words, everything. The, uh, the second, when I joined the Opry, my parents, uh, I had flown my parents down from Pennsylvania. And of course I had in my mind all how I was gonna acknowledge them in the audience and what I was gonna say about them. But I got so nervous when I walked out there. Somebody hit an A chord and I just started singing. <laughs> Thank goodness the audience was so nice to me and gave me an encore because when I came back, then I had enough sense to acknowledge my family and the audience and make a little more sense of what I was doing. But I know it was just, it was such a thrill and uh, such a milestone in my life, one that I knew I would never forget. And I was certainly caught up in the in emotions of that night. All these years later, uh, is it ever old hat or is it still, what's it like every time you step on that stage now? Uh, it's wonderful every time I get to walk through that canopy going into the back door. I will admit this, that there were, it's been many years ago now, but I went through a time, it was a really rough time through my life, and I remember hearing myself say, when somebody asked me to do something, I said, no, I have to do the opera this weekend. And something clicked, and I thought, don't ever say that again, Jeannie, because no, you don't have to work the Opry. You get to work the Opry. 
And if you are thinking you have to do this, maybe you need to sit home and sit it out a few nights. <laughs> so from that moment on, I have never said I have to work the opera again. I always say, no, we're getting to do the opera here. We're going to do it, whatever. I love it. We're sure glad you do. Thank you. Through the years, you worked with so many legends in the business. Do you ever just step back and think about what those experiences were like? Well, stepping back and looking at it, uh, I realized there again how blessed I have been. I think one of the unique situations that I that really shows it, I was a big fan of George Morgan's back in the early 50s too before I left Pennsylvania. So I was always amazed that I got to be at the Grand Ole Opry in time to get to meet, know George Morgan, become friends with him. And by in doing that, watched Lori Morgan grow up and to become friends with her. And one night we were all doing a fundraiser show of some kind. And in the lineup, I was following Jesse Keith Whitley, Lori's son, and I was just sitting, standing there backstage saying, who gets to do this? This is three total generations. I got to be here and I get to still be here. That's the good part. So what's one thing about Nashville as it used to be and country music as it used to be that you wish still remained today? Well, I wish we had a little closer contact, you know, but the industry has grown so much and there's two sides to that. The good side is, is everybody's making a better living and we're taking our music to more places and the town has grown and so many other jobs have been uh, formed, you know, more people get employed because there's more facets of the business now. All of that is good. But with that comes a little disconnection. You know, we don't get used to be you go down on Music Row, you knew everybody in every office and, all, you know, everywhere you went and hung out the same places. So I miss that. But uh, so this kind of good that we get to do the kind of things we're doing now. I will always feel like I maybe had a beer with you at Tootsie's from now on. <laughs> Well, I hope we can still do that one of these days. I'm all for it. I'll, I'll buy the first couple rounds. I know my part. <laughs> well, we got Tim, Tim Atwood in the background. Tim, you were a part of this project. Uh, tell us a bit about your relationship with Jeannie over the years and what it means to be a part of this, her 17th studio album. Well, um, Jeannie and I became friends really quick. And uh, it's been over a 40-year friendship. And she's so talented, probably the wittiest person I know. And uh, she was so gracious. When I left the Opry, um, didn't know what I was going to do, but I always wanted to start a solo career. But Jeannie uh, started booking these things to where she and I could go out with just a piano. And uh, was the first one that really got me back into it and started working. And uh, She's just incredible, and uh, I'm just very fortunate to know her. When 
Tim, you know, I could see such an opportunity for him here. And I, I like to always say, I watched him always in the background at the Opry, and I knew how talented he was. I knew what a great entertainer he was. They were all seeing and hearing what a great musician he was. But I knew what a great entertainer he was. But I always admired Stay home. He had good gigs. You got to admit that. The early morning TV show, a lot of session work, and the steady thing at the Opry. And he was raising two sons. So I admired him for staying in town and doing that. So when he left the Opry, I thought, you know, in today's world, there's so many opportunities out there for us now. We can do on our own. And I knew it was time for the rest of the world to see and hear what I always knew was there with Tim Atwood. I'm so proud of him. Yeah. Every every album he does gets better, gets stronger. Well, I tell you what, one of the other favorite things of mine that you're doing is Sundays with Sealy on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. What a great addition that's been to an already great channel. And you've been able to adapt through COVID here and take that from the studios downtown out to your house there along the Cumberland River. How's that going for you? Well, it's kind of cool. You know, um, I kind of miss in one way being able to go downtown to all the excitement and see everything going on and overlooking Lower Broadway and everybody there so excited and seeing our town. But of course, it's uh, the studios are all closed down there right now. And so it's a lot more comfortable to be at home. I don't have to wear shoes now. So, <laughs> and it is fun to work from home. And, and I thank you for your compliment on the Sundays with Seeley show. You know, I'm, I'm glad they gave me the Sunday afternoon because it allows me to be a little more relaxed. I think people are more relaxed on Sunday. I don't know that I could do one of those morning drive time things like Charlie Monk, you know, you have to be kind of up and going. Of course, Charlie's crazy, so that's that helps a lot. On <laughs> Willie's Roadhouse, you get to share the airwaves with another of my favorites, Dallas Wayne, who wrote one of the cornerstones of your new album uh, called Not a Dry Eye in the House, which you did as a duet with Willie Nelson. Well, Dallas wrote this song years ago and recorded it. And whenever I heard it, I just absolutely stopped what I was doing. Uh-oh, because I'm such now a... Now you got to watch what you're going to say next. Oh, my goodness. Who is that? The ghost of Johnny Russell. Well, we want to welcome into the program singer, songwriter, and host on SiriusXM, Dallas Wayne. How you doing, kid? I'm doing great. What a good surprise to see you. Oh, it's nice to be uh, away from unpacking boxes right now. <laughs> yeah, moving's no fun, is it? Next time I do it, it's going to be in a casket. Oh, <laughs> let's don't talk about that anytime soon. <laughs> Dallas, you wrote such an incredible song. And thank, thank you. Your record was so great. I just started to tell Brant I was such a fan of your record. I had to listen to it just enough to make sure I knew the song and then not hear your record so that I could do it. And thank you for allowing me to record this song. Uh, you, you certainly made it your own, and, and I couldn't be prouder. And how about getting Willie to do a duet with the song? Was that too cool? And you got him to sing in time. 
<laughs> yeah, and played Trigger. Oh, that solo on there is just absolutely stunning. Yeah. Beautiful. Congratulations on the new album, American Classic. It, it's just, I can't wait for Friday. It's going to be fun. This is such a star-studded project produced by the great Don Cusick. In addition to Willie and Dallas collaboration, he worked with the Whites, Steve Warner, Rhonda Vincent, Whispering Bill Anderson, Waylon Payne, Vince Gill, Lori Morgan, and the great Ray Stevens on the song Dance Tonight, which was penned by an up-and-comer by the name of Paul McCartney. <laughs> That's quite a lineup. Yeah, and also incredible musicians in the studio. And these songs... Um, I'm just really happy with the selection of songs. You know, I after we finished it and they sent me the final mixes and I said, you know, I just want a break away from it for a while. Uh, Dallas had heard the mixes and uh, I think Tim too. And everybody said they sounded good. So I'm like, that's fine. I just want a break away so that when I listen, I can listen with fresh ears just to hear the whole album. And I have to say, I'm very proud of it. I like the way the moods change. I don't like to hear the same thing all the way through an album. Well, I tell you what, one of the writers that you worked on this project with is your pal and mine, Bobby Tomberlin, who co-wrote If You Could Call It That with Steve Warner, which was a song that uh, was started by Dottie West and found amongst the journal of her unfinished work. And I tell you what, since we're having a party here, uh, oh let's hear goodness. a bit from the guy. Hey, guys, how are you? I do. Uh, it's so good to be here. Dallas, how great is this to be celebrating Jeannie's new CD coming out? It's incredible. Uh, this this album from front to back is just brilliant. Hats off to Jeannie and, and to Don both for putting together a great record. I'm just so excited oh, to be able to say I've got a Jeannie Seeley cut. Yeah, <laughs> I am. I was talking about you the other day, Bobby, and talking about this song that Dottie started. And I said I was so glad you and Steve Warner finished what she started. And as I listened to those lines, I truly believe had she been here, that's what she would have said in this song. Look you guys here. just channeled her. <laughs> I have the notebook. Wow. Oh, wow. Dottie's notebook. And you want to see something, you won't be able to see it, but in the back of the notebook, she has your phone number here. Really? Yeah. Oh, Jeannie and Hank, 824 Yep. <laughs> that was Isn't that wild? Yeah. Wow. What was it like to give life to that song? Oh, gosh. Well, Ron Harmon, he found the unfinished lyric. And he talked to Dottie's daughter, Shelly, maybe about me working on it. And when he approached me, I'm like, oh, it would be such an honor. But the truth is, I didn't know Dottie. I did see her a couple of times at the Grand Ole Opry when I first moved here. I'll never forget. She was running in late one night and bumped into me. And I can still see her expression and apologizing and tapped me on the shoulder. And it was almost like a queen had entered the building. And... Uh, because, you know, and I didn't feel comfortable finishing the song by myself. So I thought it was important to bring someone in who really knew Dottie. And, of course, Steve Warner, I just, he was the guy. And he was so excited to finish it. And then when we finished the song, I'm like, well, Jeannie Seeley's recording a new album. And I emailed a rough 
guitar vocal to her. I'll never forget. And and you immediately really, you got it. You you wanted to do it. And I'm so, so glad you did. I can't even imagine how I would have felt if you guys would have let anybody else have that song. Oh, no, that's I, your song. I would that's have been song. devastated. And I've said this before, doing this song, I felt the same way I did when I sang Here Comes My Baby at the medallion ceremony. It, it feels like I'm getting to finish something for Dottie that she started. Oh, and that just beautiful. makes me feel so good. Well, I'm just so honored. There's so many cool factors about it for me because, you know, having my name as a co-writer with the great Dottie West and of course, Steve Warner credited, but then Jeannie Seeley being the artist to record it. And then Steve, you know, to uh, sing harmony on it and play guitar. I mean, it's just so many wins here. Yes. A lot of wins. It really, and I'm so proud that this project is on Curb Records. I've been affiliated with Curb for 25 years now and how cool that Jeannie is a part of that team now. Oh, I was so thrilled. I can't even tell you. I remember talking to you and being so excited. Saying, Can you believe it, Bobby? Mike Curb is going to take the album. So well, glad it's, to be it's, there. It makes perfect sense. And how yeah. cool to, to be involved in all the guests. I still just can't get over it. And, and it's great. You know, a lot of times when there's guests on projects, it seems kind of rushed, but I mean, it, it was the perfect guest, like the Whites, Steve. I mean, all of them, Rhonda Vincent. I mean, these are exceptional, exceptional uh, recordings. So I know it's something well, that you're- I think, I think one of the things that feels good, I think it comes through on this album. We didn't, didn't Willie is the only one that we had to send a track to, but everybody else, we were in the studio doing it together. And I think that comes across on the record. And that's and, a rarity these days. That doesn't happen for the most part yeah. anymore. And uh, if if things would have been different, we would have had Willie in the studio with us. But like I said, with everything changed like it is, and with everybody working from home, and of course his schedule. So I was just glad he did it, period. Absolutely. <laughs> From the concept to uh, where we are now, about how long did that whole process take? It's been about a year um, since we started working on it, maybe a little bit over it. We were um, we were moving at a pretty fast pace for a while, and then we just kind of backed off. And then when the virus hit, we, that kind of shoved everything back as far as releasing till we knew exactly what we were doing what we were dealing with and what we could do. But it's been, um, it's been worth the wait. I am so proud of this and I'm so excited to get it out. And uh, gang, I just got to tell you, I know how blessed I've been. Who gets an album on Curb Records for her 80th birthday featuring the dude <laughs> I mean, who gets that beside me? I'm so happy. That's beautiful. And you've got Tim behind you, Tim. You've got new music on the way. And I saw on socials the other day, you were listening to some of the mixes of that and liking what you heard. I'm so excited about this project. Um, this is my fourth uh, CD. And uh, I, I've got such a wide variety 
Uh, I love country music. I love rock and roll. I like all music. And this is kind of an amalgamation of all of that together. And uh, I did an old song that I've heard my whole life. Uh, Mama's little baby love, shortening, shortening. Mm-hmm. I did that, but man, I rock and rolled it. And uh, matter of fact, I even added a horn section. And uh, so I'm really excited. It's a, like I said, there's are songs that that's the kind of stuff I like. Matter of fact, uh, the album's going to be called That's Who I Am. And uh, anyhow, it's, it's, I'm really excited. We're not quite done with it. We've got a couple more things uh, to do, but uh, it should be out somewhere between September and October. And Gene, I don't want to let you get out of here this week without talking about something else great that you have coming up. One of the things that I've always admired about you is how you've taken so many up-and-coming female artists under your wing. And Tuesday, August 18th, you're going to be participating as the special guest in Change the Conversation's Tales of a Trailblazer, Stepping Up and Speaking Out, which is moderated by co-founder Beverly Keel, who's one of the most dynamic people behind the scenes in country music. It's going to be a free webinar that's going to focus on gender equity in the country music industry. I was delighted to hear that uh, they'd, they'd asked me to participate. It's kind of like a panel discussion, I think, and as I understand it, and it's wonderful to be called the trailblazer. And, you know, you do things as you go through life and, and you hope they're making a difference. And there were several things as I was coming up that just simply made me uncomfortable and unhappy and I didn't really like the way female artists were introduced I mean they never bothered to I mean you could have the number one record in the nation but they wouldn't say that they just here's a cute little girl got on a pretty little outfit it's like please where is that coming from and and the guys I'll tell you when I first stopped that on a talk show and it was brought to the fore. My friend Dottie West called me later and she said, Jeannie, I'm so afraid they won't introduce you at all if you keep speaking out. But I said, Dottie, somebody you have somebody has to say something and to get it to change. And she said, Well, it's never gonna change in our lifetime. And sadly it didn't in Dottie's, but it has changed since then. And like hosting at the Opry, to me, it didn't make any sense that I wasn't allowed to have a microphone and and introduce people and to talk to people um, just because I was a female. And when Bob Whitaker took over as manager at the Opry, he understood for the first time a manager of the Opry understood because he had been managing Opryland Park. And out there on all of those production shows, everybody had a microphone, everybody had a speaking part and a singing part. So he was open to the suggestion, but he said, I told him, he said, well, what did they say to you when you asked about it? And I said, I was always told that it was tradition. But I always reminded them that it really kind of smelled like discrimination to me. Hmm. But anyway, he finally said, okay, Celie, I'm going to run you out there, but you better do your homework and you better handle the job or we're both in trouble. So it's been a, it's been a joy 
for me to watch the young women walk out there now without having to fight that battle. We've still got battles to fight, there's no question, but I think we're doing it the right way. I think we're trying to make people understand where we're coming from and show them we can do the job. That's the main thing to do to change it. As we stand now, from what you've seen uh, through years past and what you're seeing right now, what is the state of the Opry and, and where do you see it going in the future? Well, I thought until the COVID virus brought it down, it was doing really good. Uh, and I hope that we will come out on the good side of this when it's all over. Um, but I think they, with uh, Dan Rogers taking over as manager, Dan has the history of the Opry so much in his mind. He knows the tradition. And he also has his fingers solidly on the pulse of what's happening today. Nothing is like the Grand Ole Opry. It is not just a regular concert hall in another venue. It is the Grand Ole Opry. It's legendary. It's an American institution, and it certainly has stood the test of time, and I hope that everybody will step up to the plate and keep it going. I think, if anything, this might be good for it. Maybe some people took the Opry for granted. And now having this little taste of it being gone away, just maybe they'll come back with even stronger support. That's what I'm hoping. That's a that's a great point. And I, you know, as we're all here together, I hope that there's always a balance between uh, what what's new and up and coming, but also some of the true traditional stuff uh, that we all love so much and care so much for. I'll tell you what, this new album is coming out Friday. I hope everybody will go and get it. If you need the details, head on over to JeannieSeely.com to purchase it and follow her on all her socials so you stay plugged into everything that is Jeannie Seely. And you're even receiving some great press here. You know, I saw just today the great traditional country DJ Scott Weichel that you were on with yesterday has uh, got an article on the new Ion right there next to the hard rocking uh, Ron Keel band there. How about that? He's also got a piece with my buddy, uh, uh, Scott Southworth, who's going to be on the show here in a few weeks. So shout out to Scott and, and Scott Weichel for doing that. It's got to be a thrill to still be getting that kind of recognition, huh? It is absolutely thrilling. And again, like I said, who gets to do this at this point in my life and my career? I just can't even tell everybody how grateful I am. And you mentioned the young people that I mentor. They're giving me such support. I'm I'm just amazed, you know. I did a couple of things with the song suffragists, and they invited me to their sixth anniversary show. And to see those writing such good songs and performing so well, and to know they're behind me is just I just am, I'm I don't even know what to say. It makes me feel so good. When you talk about writing, is that something you're still doing quite a bit of? If Bobby Tomberlin will make me do it again. <laughs> Bobby was so instrumental in getting me started writing again. And I had never set a writing appointment. And I was always afraid I'd be embarrassed if I couldn't think of anything when I got there. And 
Bobby is the one who really encouraged me to do that. He and Aaron Enderlin. Mm. And so when we finally got together with an idea I had, then I told him, I said, well, if y'all like the idea, if I just can't think of another thing when I get to the meeting, at least I have that much. And so it was wonderful. They came out here and I think we wrote a pretty darn good song and Rhonda Vincent thought so too. Yeah, and it was number one in the bluegrass charts. I've never had a song in the bluegrass charts. And, and I want to brag on Jeannie. I can't imagine her being a little shy about getting together because she has had so many songs recorded. People like Ray Price, Ernest Tubb, Connie Smith, Hank Williams Jr. Oh, my gosh. I mean, literally dozens and dozens. Merle Haggard, Willie Nelson, so many iconic cuts. And uh, a lot of people are not Oh, yeah, Dallas White, yeah. So many people, though, really aren't aware of how many songs she's had recorded by major artists. Well, and if you forget any of those, just tune in, Dallas Wayne, uh, weekday afternoons, and he, he'll fill you in. I'll play a bunch of them, yeah. Any last thoughts Dallas, before we get out of here, Big D? Uh, just, I, I encourage everybody to go out and get this incredible album. Uh, it's called An American Classic, and it, that's an aptly titled record for this young lady right here. Jeannie, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here tonight on Fast Line, Fast Track. And Tim, it's great to see you again, man. Thank you so much for doing that. And Bobby, thank you so much for coming in on a short notice and doing it. And Dallas, a really short notice. Thank you guys so much. Honored. Absolutely Every, honored. Love you, guys. Oh, Love you darling. And we'll, we'll catch up with Dallas down the road. He tells me he he's going to start working on some new stuff here. And as soon as he gets it rolling, we'll get him back on the show, too. As soon as I get these boxes unpacked, I'll be happy to do it. <laughs> we might have to have an unpacking party. There I think that go. might be a nice idea. Tom Sawyer, this thing. We want to send a special shout out to our musical sponsor, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. And I hope that when you're in the Nashville area, you'll go and check them out. They have a great selection of vinyl, CDs, and merchandise. And if they don't have it, I know they'll find it for you. Now, they have some new hours that just went into effect this week, so pay close attention. They'll be closed on Mondays and Tuesdays. And then Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays open 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. And on Fridays and Saturdays open 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. So when they're open, stop by and say hi and tell them you heard it on Fast Line, Fast Track. I also want to say a special shout-out to our friends at Farm Life and thank them for their support of Fast Line, Fast Track. Go over and give them a like on their Facebook page so you can connect with others interested in agriculture. And join me over on their page Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern as I join Brandon Deal to talk about the things that are on the minds of farmers. And speaking of things on farmers' minds, harvest season is rapidly approaching in many places across the country. If you're in the market for combines, heads, grain carts, grain dryers, trailers, or anything else, head on over to FastLine.com and check out the equipment locator with a price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. That's FastLine.com. And while you're on the website, be sure to sign up for the print catalog for your state or region. No need to head into town to pick one up off the convenience store rack. The FastLine catalog is being delivered directly to your mailbox, and it's still a favorite resource of farmers and ranchers across this great country. Hey, remember to subscribe to the FastLine Fast Track podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, and add our Spotify playlist to your library for all the music from past, current, and upcoming guests of the show. 
And don't forget, be sure to hit us up on all the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Well, it's time for me to get out of here. So until next time, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fastline Fast Track, presented by Fastline Media Group. To learn more about Fastline's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastlineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, Fastline.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at Fastline.com.